Well, such a lovely ball over the top here, and the run in behind for England is by turn. What a chip! What a goal! The winner is Qatar. It is not safe for someone like me to watch the World Cup in Qatar. The legacy of this tournament is the change in society. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup. Officials fined a million US dollars while lobbying them to the Qatar. I'm rapidly falling out of love with football. I just wonder what's the point anymore, you know. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. Hello, and welcome to Pro Revolution Soccer. My name's Tom Williams, and I'm here with the other half of the communist saint and greavesy, Keir Milburn. Thanks, Tom. Can I be in Greaves in, in this setup? You want to be Jimmy Greaves, the poach supreme. Fair enough. Well, I, I'm, I'm a Saints fan, so I'll be Ian Saint John, I suppose. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, what might you ask is the point of having a communist Saint and Greavesy? You may well ask that. What is the point of pro-revolution soccer or pro-revo? Well, we decided that there weren't sufficient levels of organisation to make a boycott of this World Cup effective, so we're doing a, a consciousness-raising project instead in an attempt to sort of bring left-leaning football fans together so that we might be able to take more effective action in the future uh, more of this later but it's important to say that this project does also involve a whole raft of very interesting written articles on the Navarra website so please do go to the Navarra website and check them out and also if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to support Navarra media in making more political content that you won't find anywhere else why not become a supporter? Head to navara.media slash support and set up a donation from as little as a pound a month. Now, to foreshadow the topics and the guests this week, the question that we have asked ourselves and asked our guests um, is, what does Qatar want? We have asked that of a writer and activist called Ali Reader, who we are going to listen to and pre-recorded interview with with later, Ali co-wrote an article on Navarra Media this week about why Gulf states are buying football clubs in the north of England. But we also have sports journalist Kate Mason of the Football Ramble, who has recorded a frankly brilliant podcast called Inside the Qatar World Cup. Kate, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening to inside the Qatar World Cup and for being so nice about it. Well, I mean, you're very welcome. Uh, we The third episode dropped, I believe, earlier this week. Yeah, the opening ceremony day. So it was something to celebrate uh, the third episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, it was I think that's why. Yeah, I think that's why the stadium emptied so quickly. Actually, Kate, I've <laughs> seen the notifications coming up on their phone, and they were rushing back to catch it. Well, to, to dwell on the tournament itself, and to dwell a little bit on the football um, to be, to begin with, before we move to the the more sort of um, the more political stuff. Kate, has the tournament gone as you expected it to go thus far? To be honest, I got quite excited when Australia went 1-0 up against France because, you know, that that mad thing of how uh, the holders always get knocked or pretty much always get knocked out in the group stages. And I was like, here we are again. And then, of course, oh, man, Olivier Giroud gets a couple, Mbappe scores. Yeah, that, that makes them look like they are not going to be the team that falls out in the group stages and completely underperforms. So that was quite fun to watch. I also like to see Giroud attempting a scorpion kick at his age. At his age. Shame it didn't go in. Um, of course, I enjoyed uh, Monday watching England 
beat Iran in quite kind of swashbuckling fashion. Ooh. And Wales getting their point, the Gareth Bale. So, as I'm a Tottenham fan, guys, as possibly you already know. But um, so Gareth Bale has a very special place in my heart. And uh, his, I love seeing him play for Wales, to be honest. I love all mm. that stuff that he comes out and, and uh, you know, whatever it is, Wales, golf, Madrid. Like, I, I kind of really enjoy the way that he's, he's doing things. He's done things his own way, even if ultimately he's now playing out of my heart and out of my sight in the States, which is a shame. Um, so in terms of how things have gone, has it been as I've expected? Obviously, there was the Saudi Arabia upset against Argentina. And I've been one of these people who's been saying, oh, you know, Argentina, maybe this is their year. And thinking about the great narrative of Lionel Messi, although given that Lionel Messi is like a Saudi Arabia mm. uh, tourism ambassador by now, I don't know if this is part of the deal that, <laughs> that yeah, Saudi Saudi got to win to really boost their um i'm not accusing him of match fixing before we go any further but you know what i mean the, the romance of it all is slightly has been slightly killed by that but we'll be in, be interesting to see uh what happens next in argentina's run um so i guess england were more exciting france were better ultimately even despite going a goal to nil down and wales were probably about the same as i expected so yeah similar-ish to what i thought mm. They were they were really quite bad in the first half though, weren't they, Wales? So. Yeah. yeah, but big day, isn't it? Big. I tell you what, Qatar were worse than I thought they would be because uh, they, yeah. you know, they are Asian champions and they've spent. Well, we talked to a few of the people in the country when we were doing the the podcast, and um, they were saying that they'd all been away from their club sides for six months training as a unit. And you just think, that sounds like a terrible idea. Um, But they are, in fact, usually a good side. And I suppose I had underestimated the real, like, power of that occasion and how much of a struggle it must have and clearly was for them playing that opening game against Ecuador. And if you think, like everyone, those guys are kind of imports, mm. you know, and the power of this, the Qatar state is kind of riding on them. So, yeah, perhaps not so surprising, but I thought mm. they'd do better than that. What did you think of the the, the sort of the sight of the Qatari dignitaries kind of leaving after like an hour? Oh, I didn't. Now, that was unsurprising in the extreme for me. Right. To be honest. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As, as you know, Qatar has been hosting a lot of sporting events in the run up to this. Um, one thing I always used to enjoy going to watch because I'm quite a big squash fan uh, was they hosted a lot of squash events at um, at Khalifa, and they always the thrones that the football fans will now be getting used to. But the, that's a very standard Qatari VIP VVIP section. You've always got a throne. You've always got a lineup of thrones. Even if you go to watch um, like some of the really completely empty domestic football. Uh, games as we did in episode two of of the pod. Um, there's always a line of thrones and there's a few dignitaries sitting there, and it doesn't ever really feel about as though it's about whatever the sport is that's going on in front of them. Mm. If you know what I mean, mm. to make a ridiculously broad generalisation, because as I've tried to point out, whenever talking about Qataris, there are as many different types of people who are from Qatar and who are living in Qatar as you might expect to find in the UK, and there are some incredibly avid sports fans that I know who would who would be there to the very last minute but um it probably wasn't even so much of a show of disgust as perhaps it's been painted or it's been perceived to be it's more like sports a commodity mm. this whole thing is a commodity 
I'm not really enjoying it, understandably. It wasn't a great game. So, you know, life's too short. <laughs> okay, we should probably explain to listeners that not only did you go to Qatar to do to, to interview particular migrant workers, actually, um, for the Football Ramble podcast, but you've also worked, you've also lived and worked in, in Qatar in the past. So you have that sort of background experience as well. Yeah, I was there for two years. Um, from 2017 to 2019. And I think probably I was there in quite a, I don't want to say naive way, I don't know. The more I've reflected on it, the more I found out, the more bizarre it is to me to think that I just sort of got a job and trotted on out there to see what was going on. But equally, I probably would do it again because I'm glad to have found out all the things that I've learned and to to know a bit more about that part of the world. And also like, only 10% of the people living in Qatar are actually like citizens. So mm. it was fascinating, really. And some of them feature in the in the doc to meet people from all over the Arab world, which I, you know, I didn't know really. I hadn't really met anybody from like Jordan or got to know anybody from Jordan or Lebanon or any of these places before eating Yemeni food. Oh, my goodness, guys, it's the best. And of course, many of them have come to live there because of deep, deep problems in their own countries and, and terrible situations there. So I feel it was actually an amazing privilege to get to meet such a wide range of people in a way that I never would have done. I mean, there's a wide range of people in London, obviously, but it's, it's a very different setup. Keir, did you enjoy the Wales game, mate? Um, that's not... So, so I, I, am, I am Welsh, Kate, um, and I watched the Welsh game with a family WhatsApp going, <laughs> getting more and more distressed as the first half... <laughs> went on um, so I, no I, I i didn't enjoy it no. <laughs> what were you expecting were you expecting to enjoy it i don't know i feel like it's more like your birthright to suffer <laughs> that is definitely the narrative that is the welsh narrative that we, we're still here and all that sort of stuff i mean <laughs> I, the us were a lot better than i thought actually that um, yeah I, I also support leeds so you know tyler adams um extreme pressing etc etc was you know I, they were on top of Wales so much I thought in that first half and really yeah. pinned Wales back into a back five and yeah and so we had to bring Kiefer Moore on mate Kiefer <laughs> Moore is a player I absolutely he love can really him. play yeah, yeah he can he's not just a big tall lump there's no doubt about that we but. did a thing with um I do interviews as well for Ramble yeah. and uh, we did one with uh, Thomas, as he now calls himself, but Hal Robson Carnu, and uh, we got lots of Welsh fans to send in their 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 feeling in that moment of that goal that he scored. And bloody hell, yeah, I was looking for a citizenship switch by the end of that. It was incredibly moving. I felt quite sad during a lot of this tournament because of well, for various reasons, really. I'm sure you can both guess what what they were, and I feel quite resentful almost really that Gareth Bale has been turned into a sort of a walk and chew gum thing for me because I love Gareth Bale I saw his senior debut for Southampton way back in 2006 when he was playing left back for oh. us in the championship yeah. and the, the ball the ball went back to him almost straight from the kickoff and he just sort of ambled past three defenders and got to the byline before whipping in this perfect cross that no one got on the end of because they were all so shocked that they were playing with somebody who's actually good <laughs> and, uh, and he's basically you know spent a good chunk of the last few years using one of the most evil clubs in the world, Real Madrid, the way boxers or MMA fighters use the gym, just sort of getting himself ready to be an absolute cyborg for <laughs> Wales. Um, yeah. But, you know, could he have taken a yellow card on the chin? Well, absolutely, yes. Although it would have mean that he would have been sent yeah. off, wouldn't it, um, for a perfectly good tackle that um, would have meant him not scoring mm-hmm. that penalty. Mm. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the Harry Kane and, and Gareth Bale bottle job rather coloured my my enjoyment of of that and I I sort of 
I wondered how you both felt about about that that side of things, really. The the armband saga, you mean? Mm. To say. Well, I mean, the other thing to, to talk about is the Iranian team not singing the national anthem and actually doing some quite good interviews mm. afterwards in solidarity with yeah. the with the protests or perhaps even uprising that's going on in the country at the minute, which is incredibly brave and is risking a lot more than the yellow card, of course. Mm. Mm. But the other side of that is, you know, it is odd that we we want we we ask these quite young men <laughs> to be political leaders as well as footballers. That certainly didn't used to be the case. There's quite a lot mm. to put on their shoulders, I think. Yeah, well, there's there's more stuff coming. I think this will develop a lot as a story, you know, over the course of the next few days, because there's a lot more stuff coming out. Because you know, there were seven European teams who are planning to wear it, and what started to be spoken about is from particularly vocal has been the German FA who have said that they plan to take legal steps against FIFA over the way that they they went about this and the banning of the rainbow armband. So there's not, it's not specific on what exact, what, how exactly the pressure was exerted. Um, but the idea the, or the announcement or the, the press conference, I guess it was that I saw from the, the guy who's the head of the German FA, he was saying that, trying to impose playing sanctions like sporting sanctions on an act like this he felt they were in a position this was unprecedented and he felt like they were in a position to take some kind of action but if that is the case and if this in fact leads to some of these FAs and some people uh, managing to have an impact on the way that FIFA runs things, then you could, looking massively, totally optimistically, hope that this is actually like a big step that has even more impact. But in the moment, yeah, it felt really depressing. Tom spoke to writer and activist Ali Reader earlier in the week, who mentions and discusses some of these topics. So perhaps we can go to that. I'm going to start with quite a, a big and broad question, I suppose. What does Qatar want? Well, Qatar is a country that, luckily, it's been a statelet, so it's a very small state. Up until the 70s, it's been a protectorate under the protection of the British Empire, after which the discovery of oil made it much more economically relevant to the Middle East and since the 2000s, with the discovery of liquefied natural gas, it's made it relevant for the entire globe. It's a country with less than a million people. It's a country with also no ecological basis for agriculture, no running water, no permanent bodies of water that can be used for agriculture. They basically have to recycle their own sewage to be able to um, grow the tiny bits of food that they do grow. And then everything else is imported. And so what Qatar wants is, A, to develop its state in a way that is um, not simply defined by its uh, fossil fuel endowment. And secondly, it wants to exit the great shadow that uh, Saudi Arabia places upon it. If you remember in around four years ago, Qatar was kicked out of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is basically the EU for Gulf countries. So Saudi Arabia, Qatar, 
the Emirates and then Bahrain and Oman are part of this coalition. It's an co- economic, political and um, military sort of alliance. But because Qatar has always been the odd child of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, it's always wanted to play a bigger role than Saudi Arabia and the bigger players in the GCC were dictating. I think the World Cup comes into this narrative, into the story as a sort of what um, people would call rather sarcastically now a coming out event because it's a way in which you can show your infrastructure to the whole world. It's a way to show your organizational skills, your capacity to handle extreme influx of people and to demonstrate your, what the state believes its culture is and sort of tell the world, come look at me, here's what I've made. I think this is the intention of most Qataris probably, especially the Qatari state when thinking about the World Cup. We have already seen in the in the short time that the tournament's been in, in, in motion, English fans going on the hunt for beer and, and, and things like that. There's been this big controversy over the wearing of um, rainbow armbands by the captains of, of England and Wales and the risk of um, those players being, being given yellow cards. And it, it seems like they've now decided against doing that. We also, with the score at 2-0 to Ecuador yesterday, saw... Qatari dignitaries leaving the game early, clearly quite unhappy at the way the game was going. Is there a chance that hosting the World Cup might backfire? I do think it would backfire. And that's the main reason why I'm hesitant to use the sports washing framework to understand what's going on in Qatar. Because ultimately what I think is happening is what I referred to in the beginning, which is that a World Cup or the Olympics or any sort of global event taking place, even like things like the UAE Expo, they are what we would, what I would refer to as a coming out event. You're telling everyone, come and look at me, come and look at my culture, what I stand for, what I'm able to give you. And you kind of have to deal with the criticism. And of course, because it's a global event, it becomes one of those events where universal values are discussed, like homosexuality and whether we accept it. There was this interview with this English journalist whereby the English journalist was trying to assert that homosexuality was illegal in Qatar and that the Qatari state might be prejudiced against homosexuals. And then the Qataris would revert back and say, actually, we'll arrest a heterosexual for PDA, for public display of affection. We're not against homosexuality per se. We are a country that is modest. And our problem is with the public display of affection of any kind. Now, that's true, but that also points to a deeper truth, which is in a lot of Arab countries, there is a liberal scene because this country is attracting global consultants, people who are now also coming for just to see the football. Countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain as well, when they attract global cosmopolitan people working in either tech industries or engineering or finance, there is almost a social contract whereby any dubious events which would not be approved of, whether it's drinking, whether it's worshipping like non-Muslim entities, whether it's um, um, just general like disrespect or like non-alignment with uh, Eastern values, these can happen as long as it's in a private house or a hotel room. Private property allows you the right to maintain your Western sort of like activities, whatever they may be, whether it's drinking, partying, not engaging in gender segregation. 
And then if you want to engage in the public sphere as either someone who's simply walking or working at work, you have to revert back and re-engage with Qatari and Saudi values. Now, the World Cup complicates this division because the events that are happening there are obviously public, but a lot of people have not been ingrained into the system. And I think ultimately it might fire back against the Qatari state, but at the same time, it just pushes the Qataris to sort of evaluate their culture and their premises in a global light, which is in a way what the 21st century is about. I think the light that's been shown on um, migrants is um, very helpful. This is not just the case of Qatar. This is the case of the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula, including Lebanon as well, which is not even a Gulf country, but employs a similar um, labor law, which is known as the kafala system. All of these things being under a global sort of microscope I think is ultimately positive. The way the Qatari state will deal with them, I'm not sure um, what will be the end goal, obviously. But I think, in my opinion, from my perspective, this um, sort of spotlight is positive. And I'm not sure how the Qatari state will manage it eventually. All right, I'm going to move on to sort of to talking about the article that you co-authored. I'm going to quote, quote, quote your work back at you just briefly. While owning a club is a high-risk investment, with enough time and resources, a team can be turned into a revenue-generating machine. Why do that when there are much safer investments? Capitalism ultimately is obviously built on the conversion of surplus value into profit, and football clubs consistently fail to make value-extracted work in the interests of their owners. So what is the interest of Middle Eastern petrostates in in English football clubs and Western football clubs generally, but specifically clubs in the north of England? From the side of political economy at large, whenever an economy is depressed, whenever an economy is stagnating, um, which is the perennial case of the British economy after Margaret Thatcher, you have this issue of loop-sided development. So we have London, all of the assets in London are increasing at such a high rate. At the same time, the north of England has not seen this level of development at the same pace. Sure, there's been increases in housing prices in the north of England and increases in wages and profitability of firms there, but nowhere near that of London. And therefore, in an economic sense, you see a greater potential for development in the north of England because of its cheapness, because its resources haven't been, are not adequately priced, let's say. And then eventually the idea is that the values of the assets in the north of England, historically, according to market logic, should in the long run match those of London because there's simply, there shouldn't be a reason why there's such a huge discrepancy. Um, So that motivates people to invest. And so you see this weird sort of confluence between Thatcherism on the one side of like, you know, focusing on making the the values of um, the financial elite in London, the sort of the main power of um, the British economy. And then removing industrialization, removing the use of coal from the national economy and the arrival of Saudi capital and Gulf capital in general. In the mid-70s, there was an oil shock. Similar to what's going on today, there was a huge increase in the price of oil. And a lot of uh, countries in OPEC took a greater control of local oil production. 
that made them really rich. It was such an, a, a ludicrous amount of capital that an army of investors from the West came in to help the Saudis and the Gulfs find ways to sort of channel that money. Because if you have lots of money all of at the same time, the problem is that you might get inflation. And so these financiers came and suggested various ways they could offset that inflation. And the main way was two things. You buy real estate and companies in the West. And secondly, you buy weapons, which was the worst part of that deal, really. So you have that happening on the side of the Gulf. The Gulf is getting richer. It has all of this money that it has to spend. The West is losing interest in developing industrial policy because it's politically costly. You have the working classes in the West rising up, forming unions that could shut down the local economy. The West says, you know what? We're going to get rid of coal. We're going to bring in oil. Uh, any way to stop the working classes that are productive in our economy from having any power over the state. And what we're going to do is we're going to open up the city of London to capital at large. And thank God there was this huge boon of capital coming from the from the Gulf that would replace all the um, industrial capital that Britain had relied on the century before. It also allows them to, and this is David Wang's argument, which I think is very pertinent here, is that because producing weapons is very expensive, you need to be able to sell some of your surplus weaponry. Um, you can't actually enforce a domestic defense policy that is reliable without selling scraps and bits to a third party that is willing to buy them at an upscale price. The Gulf basically funds our defense policy. The Gulf basically funds our capacity to do away with an industrial economy. I don't think you and I necessarily benefit um, as much as um, the city of London does and the defense industry does. Some interesting insights there from Ali, in particular around what the British state gets out of this kind of arrangement. Kate, as well as having actually been on the ground in Qatar, you've worked in football media, so you have an insight here that we don't. What do you think the ramifications of this are going to be for Qatar, but also for FIFA? Do you think the way this is going, the way the tournament is shaping up, might it turn out to have been a step too far, even for an organisation that's repeatedly disgraced itself in the way FIFA has? <laughs> what a great question. I think what's been fascinating to see has been the way that Qatar seemingly has power above FIFA in a lot of the things that have been going on during the World Cup. And as someone who's lived there, that actually knowing what it's like to, to be in Qatar and to effectively everyone who's there is a guest of the Qatar state, if that makes sense. So, you know, you've got these 10% of the population who are citizens and they have huge advantages to being citizens because they get lots and lots of money from the state. They get sent, if you want to go and study abroad, for example, you get your tuition fees paid for, um, you get given a plot of land in some cases. So that's, that's that. You have it. There's a huge benefit to being Qatari, um, and then everybody else, ninety percent of the population, has been brought there to work, and so you're reliant on the goodwill, effectively, of of Qatar to to keep your job and and to kind of conform to how how things operate there. But if you talk about um, FIFA, 
the experience that they've had is that they're basically a guest in the country and <laughs> Qatar has in many cases the tradition what I think of as the traditional Qatar negotiating strategy is delay is filibuster so when you've got a deadline of a world cup that literally has to happen because everyone's agreed that it's gonna um I have to say I did kind of enjoy seeing the last minute pulling the plug on the Budweiser because there's not really all that much. I mean, that thing, steps should have been taken years and years ago. Pretty much everybody who was involved in giving Qatar the World Cup is long gone, has been banned from football. So that tells you pretty much all you need to know. Um, but at this point, yeah, it's been kind of fun to see what a position they find themselves in, old FIFA. Um, but I didn't expect the rainbow flag stuff. On the beer, yeah, I'm not surprised that that's not been allowed in stadiums. But I suppose I did kind of imagine that it would become a, a fake European place for a month or so. And that anybody who like arrested, you know, like those guys who stopped the Danish journalist filming, anybody who did that... I assumed what would happen is that a spokesperson for Qatar or for FIFA would be like, oh, those were just guys, you know, acting of their own volition. They're just uh, silly blokes. That's not our policy at all. Um, and I don't know if it's because they're so disorganised that they haven't managed to palm it all off onto the individual worker who thinks he's doing his best or if that's just not the policy. But I guess we'll find out as as the days and weeks go on. One of the things I was, uh, I, I've been thinking about in this question of like, what will be the, the, the the subsequent impact on both Qatar and on on FIFA is actually quite hard to work out when we're sat in the UK watching TV because <laughs> I've been quite surprised mm -hmm. at the you know the BBC didn't show the opening ceremony that's that's been misreported though because um it was you know as you know it was on the red button and it actually isn't standard that they show it um that they show opening ceremonies on BBC One because like to be honest. Most of them are crap. Um, for the oh, yeah. <laughs> for the Olympics, they do show it, and then but not so much yeah. for the World Cup. So, yeah, they did a really good like analysis of of the situation there. But I, it's it's not true to say that they kind of took a stand and 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 blotted it out. Yeah, no, not fair enough. I, but I've still been a little bit taken aback by the forthrightness of the criticisms, you know. Mm, have you? Uh, even, even from somebody like Roy Keane saying the World Cup should just should not impressive. be. It was good. Yeah. I, but, but I, think I was the just surprised with, he said it, but yeah. I, I think the thing is with the, it, the World Cup shouldn't be here is that's like, that is a matter of public record. It's not really an opinion. He'll have had a briefing as Gary Lineker will and all of those guys will have done. So if they have, then they can feel pretty confident to say those things. Well, I was wondering though whether... Um, it's getting the same reaction the World Cup in other in other parts of the world, you know, and other other TV stations and other countries are covering it in a similar way or not. That's going to be quite important about whether FIFA can just ride this out or not. Yeah, basically. that's true. I, yeah, that's another really good point. Yeah, England. The the I've had people ask me, um, who is it? Oh, Mariella Frostrup on her Times radio show. She was like, oh, you know, has it really been worth it for Qatar, given how much how much bad stuff we now know about the place? And I was like. Yeah, well, that's kind of the view in, in England. But I mean, and also like lots of people in the Middle East are like really bloody proud that the World Cup is going on in their region. And actually, yeah, fair enough. So the reporting has been clearly very different there. And there is a kind of us and them feel to it. And we, Kira and I were talking last night and we kind of, you know, we were initially a slightly fretful feeling like we, you know, 
we might we might have been sort of upstaged a bit almost by by liberal media but actually we we now have the opportunity to go well beyond kind of slightly hand wavy gestures towards human rights and we, you know we could actually because of the because of the discussion about the really hard exploitation of labor um in in Qatar you know, we we now have an opportunity, I think, to talk about wage labour full stop. You know, yeah. we're, we're we're socialists, we're communists. We we believe like wage labour full stop is is bad, basically. Um, but also, we're we're really interested in building fan power, right? Um, and and that's another way in which we feel we we might be able to go further. Because let's be honest, the next World Cup. I was talking to my mate Viv about this yesterday is somebody who I, I who, who currently lives in America and is somebody who I, who I do a lot of my political thinking with and he was saying that the next world cup will be in a country that has state level abortion bans states where you can marry a 12 year old and where border camps are state sanctioned but at the moment I haven't actually seen any questions about boycotting that tournament well why not and that's not sort of trying to engage or indulge in a woke off but that's that that's that's saying well we need to actually think about how we might organize around that so that it it, it can be more effective next time and you know in order to do that well, what are you going to need to do that what are you going to need to be able to take action you're going to need to have some power and it's going to be collective power and what what, what you're probably going to need to have some sort of probably a membership organisation. Is there an appetite that among sort of left-leaning football fans in Britain? Well, probably not at this stage. So what do we need to do instead? What's the what's the le- next level of organisation down from that? Well, it's coming together and having a conversation. So let's start doing that now, I think. And that's that's the way that we can kind of move beyond these slightly, in some cases, I think in the, in the case of like Lineker and the BBC, slightly glib gestural stuff. You know, we can actually start talking about taking action. I'll, I'll go on. I'll go on a rant, a rant as well at this stage. That would be nuts. One of the one of the things I really enjoyed about the about the the football ramble podcast is that you actually went out and talked to talked talk to migrant workers, and so perhaps that's one of the things. That it's not often, you know, that um, people that that migrant workers are talked about in any sort of favourable way, not not just on the football ramble, but also on on BBC coverage by pundits. You know, I mean, migrant workers in this country are not valorised in that sort of way. Basically, they, they, when I was listening to the podcast as well, you, you made this this point at one section, which I thought which really resonated with me, where you said, "Look, you you understand that um, that these global inequalities exist, and that's why you have these global flows of, of migrants." We, we all sort of carry that knowledge around in our heads in some sort of way, but when you're in Qatar, you know you can't escape that because it's in your face all the time. And so in my wildest dreams, I'm, I'm thinking, well, perhaps the fact of the Qatar World Cup could have a little bit of that that impact on all of us. Perhaps it is because Qatar is so small and it, it basically shouldn't have the World Cup. We all agree on that. And it's in November, et cetera, et cetera. It made me think of this. I'm going to do a little bit of theory now. But it made oh, me think yeah, about this, this. There's this This is critical Frederick Jameson, who, who has this idea of like cognitive mapping. And, and it really takes it from the idea that if you walk around a city, you don't have a full map of that city in your head. You have a sort of cognitive map made up of like landmarks and your habitual routes around the city. Obviously, now we just use our phones. But let's ride that out and stick with the metaphor. And he says, look, we have a really bad cognitive map of, of how the global economy works. We don't really understand how we fit into the global economy and how it structures our our lives and but he says you know you events can come along which can act as new landmarks and then help you figure it out 
And then the other thing it made me think of is uh, th- there's an economist called Jason Moore who talks about a very similar thing. And he's talking about, in fact, he's talking about the birth of industrial capitalism in Manchester. And he's, he has this saying, behind Manchester stands Mississippi. So what he's saying is you can't understand what was going on in the new factories in Manchester if you don't understand what was going on in Mississippi. And in Mississippi, there was slavery and their slaves were picking the cotton, which was the input into the, the new factories. Uh, you know, and that, that lowered the, the costs, which made those factories viable. They, that, that business could not have, those factories could not have grown and become a viable business without that, that input at that point. And that just made me think, well, perhaps behind Manchester now stands, well, Abu Dhabi. Oh, oh but behind that is like this migrant work, these flows of migrant workers to, to the Gulf, basically. And of course, it's not just when we say behind Manchester stands Abu Dhabi, we're not just talking about the ownership of the football club. You know, there's also the, the huge amount of investment in real estate that that, that, yeah. that ownership makes possible basically yeah so basically that you can get all the way from the world cup all the way over to these flows of migrant workers all the way back to manchester and why are house prices so high why are rent so high perhaps perhaps in my wildest dreams the world cup could help us to start to make those connections from this thing that seems away from us to the things that structure our everyday lives if you know what i mean yeah that's a theory half hour with Kim Milburn. I love it. Okay, that's, that's such a good way of putting it into context. Personally speaking, I never really had to confront uh, how I get to have such a nice life until I was in, in Doha. And one thing um, one of the guys who spoke on the podcast said, John McManus, who's more like an academic, is that there's the, the society is stratified and actually people don't tend to meet unless you make a real effort to um, because yeah. they're organised in such a way that you wouldn't cross bars. Now that's true in London as well. Um, if you think about the places where really rich people go as opposed to people who, who don't have resources. Um, so yeah, it was seeing these guys walking past in their like blue jumpsuits that they all wear to go to work on on the stadiums or on the massive construction sites and then also seeing as as when we heard from these guys seeing how bloody grateful in some cases they were to have been able to get the job in Qatar in the first place one guy we talked to, Malcolm Adali, who was a Kenyan security guard, he actually worked out in Qatar twice the first time. He had an absolutely fine time and he, worked, I can't remember who he worked for, but he worked, they were, they treated him well. He liked it. He thought Qatar was great. He then came out and got a second job um, as a security guard and he found himself working uh, very, very long shifts out in the heat the whole time, despite the fact that there, sh- there were supposed to be controls laid down so that people wouldn't be outdoors. Because it's like 50 degrees. I mean, I can't tell you. I don't know if you guys have experienced much of that kind of temperature, but you literally just can't do anything. You can't. Everybody else would be um, leaving their air-conditioned apartments by going down into the basement, getting into their air-conditioned cars, driving out to their office or wherever they were going to, getting out in the basement, going straight up into the air-conditioning again. And that was pretty much the best you could do. So some of these guys were outside in this heat for hours and hours on end. And and Malcolm Badali, yeah, he was saying that he just, he, he felt in some cases that back in his home country, there was no 
minimum wage. And in Qatar, there was a minimum wage. And so in many cases, he wanted to go back to, he had to go back to Kenya. He ended up getting arrested and being put in solitary confinement because he'd written a blog about his experiences. But when he went back to Kenya, um, he was trying to improve the working conditions back home for him. Because even despite this like terrible experience in Qatar, he was like, bloody hell, back home, we don't have protections either. That's awesome. He's a big St. Pauli fan now, right? He is. Yeah, that's the guy. Exactly. That was that was a really lovely part of the part of the podcast. I don't think we've actually mentioned the title of it enough. It's it's called Inside the Qatar World Cup, and it's on the the Football Ramble feed. Let's just wrap up. I think just really, really briefly. What are we looking forward to in footballing terms of the next part of the World Cup? Any matches that you are particularly holding out for, Kate? Yeah, it's, is it Spain, Germany on Sunday, I think, Sunday night? I was just checking when it is. That should be a great one. We've barely talked about England. I know. And they, they were really good. <laughs> it was pretty great to see Rashford and Saka kind of getting there. I don't want to say redemption. That word has been used far too much because they didn't do anything wrong. They're not yeah, being they're redeemed. not being redeemed. Yeah. <laughs> to, get, to get their revenge <laughs> by, um, by, by playing so brilliant. You know, Marcus Rashford... When he's in flow like that, it, it is just poetry. It does make you feel like he's been wasted so much, hasn't he, over the last yeah. in his club football, and it's so obnoxious. Do you know what? I, I should shout out Croatia and Morocco at this point, because I've been sat here like David Bowie and the man who fell to earth with three different screens on the go. I can't believe you're watching the football. That's well, so unfair. You could have told me. I just opened up the headline. It says Group F opponents play out turgid draw. So I'm glad that we- <laughs> it wasn't distracting you too. Thank you to Croatia and Morocco for not distracting me with any excitement whatsoever in that game. What, what a comradely gesture that was. <laughs> yeah, that was. I did um, fighting talk on the BBC the other day, and I think that was the one I said I wasn't going to watch. <laughs> like- well, on the next episode, we. I believe, have the very great football writer, David Goldblatt, author of The Ball Is Round, author of a very good article on the LRB website in the last week or so, um, talking about patriotism and tribalism and how it relates to football. So that, given that David is one of the great raconteurs of of football, I would say, that is is uh, quite a tantalising prospect. I do believe, Tom, that we're recording that just after the England-Wales match, so we will have much to talk about in terms of patriotism, (laughs) nationalism and tribalism, perhaps, and how we might uh, overcome it or put it in its box. So, uh, a reminder, please do go and read Ali's piece in full on uh, on Navarra Media and read all the other brilliant football coverage, that written content that is on the Navarra website um read my article on dads read Kira and I's piece on why we're not boycotting the world cup actually um Kate thank you so much for being such a great sport and such a great guest no problem congratulations on the podcast incredible work thank you so much if you struggle to find it um my twitter is at kvl mason i know hopefully people who don't even listen to podcasts will come and listen to it um and i've been also writing some bits for metro which are on this kind of theme that we've been discussing as well about what next. So, yeah, check those out. So that's Pro Revolution Soccer signing off for another week.
Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support. Or face the consequences.